with me to Matthew chapter 19. I'll begin reading the Lord's Word in verse 1. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And he answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And he said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, Whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, It is better not to marry. But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this Receive it. So common to many translations of Scripture are subheadings. Uh, If you're using an ESV, you'll find today's passage labeled Teaching About Divorce. I think the NIV has simply Divorce. Uh, And there's truth to that. In verses 3 to 9, Jesus addresses questions about divorce. But if we're not careful, those subheadings can drive our reading. We can reduce this passage to divorce and miss the larger point intended by the author, not just the human author, Matthew, but the divine author, God. The Gospels were not written topically. We don't just look up key words, say, divorce, remarriage, and then find Jesus' teaching about that topic. That comes in handy when you're trying to grapple with a particular subject and what the Bible teaches about that subject, but that's different from seeing the goal of Matthew's Gospel and the way he puts things together. This passage is not first about divorce. 
the main point is to reveal Jesus, who he is and why he came. So if you were wanting a treatise on divorce and remarriage, sorry, even what we have from Jesus doesn't address them fully. Jesus' teaching is occasional here. It's not exhaustive. He's dodging questions by the Pharisees. One must consider other passages to determine a position on these matters. And speaking of a position, know that sound-thinking Christians disagree on divorce and remarriage. Uh, There are some, for example, who hold to a no divorce, no remarriage view. There are others who hold to uh, divorce being permitted on, on two grounds of sexual immorality and, and, and divorce, but no remarriage uh, allowed. Um, there are others, like myself, uh, following the, the Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, who would argue that the Bible permits divorce on grounds of sexual immorality and abandonment. And where legitimate divorce has dissolved the marriage, then remarriage is an option for uh, the innocent party. And I say that to let you know uh, my approach, uh, but also to alert you to a very complex discussion uh, in church history, so that were you to encounter a different view, uh, it won't throw you for a loop. Okay, so with that said... Let's go back to the point I made a second ago. This passage is not mainly about divorce and what Jesus thinks of it. The main point is to reveal Jesus himself, who he is and what he came to do. So let's start where our passage does. Not with divorce. Let's start with Jesus and how he came to heal what's broken. Jesus came to heal what's broken. Verse 1. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. So this this is a crucial moment in the flow of of Matthew's gospel. Uh, We've heard Jesus explained before that that he was going to come to Jerusalem, and in Jerusalem he was going to suffer right great things at the hands of, of the leaders there, and he would be killed. So, so when, he, when Matthew says here uh, that he's entering the region of Judea, Jesus' mission is now drawing nearer to Jerusalem, and what that means is that he's also drawing nearer to his cross. But as he draws nearer to the cross, we're, we're once again reminded of, of what his mission uh, will eventually accomplish, which is the healing of all that's broken. Uh, verse 2 says that large crowds followed him and he healed them there. This is now the sixth time that a summary like this appears in uh, the gospel. Uh, and, and these Matthew uses this repetition to emphasize how Jesus' ministry was one that brought healing for humanity. He came not only to talk and to teach, but to touch and to make well. 
And this aligns with what the Old Testament had anticipated. Right? Our world sits under the curse of sin and sorrow. Sickness is just one example of that curse. But the prophets foresaw a Savior, and the way we would know Him is by specific signs that God would perform through Him. Right? The lame would leap like the deer. The eyes of the blind would be opened. The the deaf would be made to hear again. And these signs meant that in and through this Savior, God was reversing the curse. God was bringing a kingdom where, where sin and sorrow were no more. All that was broken would be made right through Him. Well, the healings in Jesus' ministry reveal that He's the Savior. Right? His life, death, resurrection were just the the beginning of those final days of God's saving work. Jesus is the one who came to make things right. He's the one who can touch your life and make you right. Do you see why that's so crucial to recall before we talk about marriage and divorce? If Jesus has power to reverse the curse and recreate the world, think of what he can do in you and in your relationship. If he comes to heal all that's broken, doesn't that also help us sit at his feet and give more attention to what he says about marriage? He knows what the world is supposed to be like. He knows what's good for you and what's good for humanity. He's he's able to to make things right again, to, to heal what's broken. And so no matter where you are, or where your marriage is currently, or what your past is like, even if it includes divorce, remarriage, this is the Lord who shows compassion to broken people. He comes to fix and to heal us all. So let's hear what he says about marriage and divorce. But again, we need to hear this within Matthew's broader purpose of revealing who Jesus is and why he came. Which leads to a second point. Jesus came to fulfill the law. Jesus came to fulfill God's law. Now, Jesus already said this himself in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. He said there, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Meaning, Jesus brings them to their truest intent. Right? And one way we observe this is when Matthew sets Jesus' interpretation of the law up against the Pharisees and their interpretation of the law. Again and again, right, we see the Pharisees trying to pin Jesus, trying to trap Jesus, asking him questions. Why do your disciples fast? Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Why don't your disciples wash their hands? They keep trying to trap Jesus, but every time, it turns out, the Pharisees don't understand the law. They twist God's law for their own ends, which is exactly what Satan did 
in Matthew chapter 4. Satan quoted the Bible and he twisted its intended purpose. And the Pharisees do the same. In fact, when it says in verse 3 that the Pharisees came and tested him, that word tested is the same word used of the devil's temptations in chapter 4 verse 1. These Pharisees are up to something satanic in the way they're using the Scriptures. But Jesus, we will see, fulfills the Scriptures. He interprets the law's true intent. That's the main point here. Jesus is the better teacher of the law. He's already shown this with defilement and what it means to be clean. He's already shown it with the Sabbath and His fulfillment of the Sabbath. Multiple other themes. Now the topic happens to be divorce. Okay, so the point is Jesus is the better teacher of the law. He fulfills the law. That's the main overarching theme here. So the Pharisees ask, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Uh, The NIV paraphrases this, for any and every cause, right? They want to know the extent Jesus is willing to grant divorce. Their focus isn't reasons to preserve marriage, but how many rights Jesus will grant to dissolve a marriage. Verse 7 helps explain why that's their focus, okay? They allude to a law where Moses addresses a specific case of divorce and remarriage. It's Deuteronomy uh, chapter 24, verses 1 to 4. I'm going to read it for you. Uh, Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. Uh, Moses writes this, When a man takes a wife and he marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and he sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house. And if she goes and becomes another man's wife and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then the former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. So this law applies to, I mean, you can see verses 1, 2, and 3 of that law are all describing the situation. The law doesn't even come till verse 4. And it is a very specific situation, isn't it? It's a very specific set of circumstances. It's not written to stipulate grounds for divorce, much less to encourage it. It's only addressing a thing that happens. The law exists to mitigate evils that arise when divorce is present in a broken society. Evils like the first husband exploiting the woman after her second marriage. The only allowance for divorce in this passage is the recognition that it happens. And the Pharisees make that their starting place. 
How many ways can we get out of the marriage? That's their focus. And Jesus responds, you started from the wrong place. You have missed the law that Moses wrote because you didn't begin where Moses began. Genesis chapter 1. Look at verse 4. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? That comes from Genesis chapter 1. And... He said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That comes from Genesis chapter 2. Don't miss Jesus' argument here. The Creator made, and the Creator said. The Creator made, and the Creator said. Understanding marriage begins with God. God created marriage. And it's a sacred institution in which God joins one man to one woman in an exclusive covenant relationship. And that covenant includes two elements, which is going to be helpful to remember later in this sermon, okay? Those two elements include leaving and cleaving, that's one, and one flesh, that's the other. So leaving and cleaving means you prioritize your spouse over all other human relationships. Your loyalties belong first to your spouse. One flesh refers to the bond which results from and is expressed by Sexual union. So marriage is both commitment and consummation. It's both commitment to each other and consummation in sexual union. Those two elements make up the the marriage covenant. And Jesus then draws this conclusion in verse 6. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Okay, and what's the action here? What therefore God has joined together, he says, let not man separate. Or man must not separate. The point isn't that man can't separate it, but that entering a marriage covenant obligates you not to separate it. God has created something new in Welding you together. Just using some of my background there. You, you are morally bound to preserve that union. Do nothing to break the relationship at any level. God himself has joined you. God's design is that all marriages be permanent. And anything that disrupts that union runs contrary to his original intent. That's Jesus' starting place. 
Jesus' focus is not what rights do I have to get out of this thing, but what must be done to preserve the marriage? So the Pharisees fire back in verse 7. Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Right? We looked at Deuteronomy 24 earlier. And now we get how Jesus reads that passage considering the whole of Scripture. He says, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. So divorce exists because of the hardness of human hearts. Divorce exists because people are stubborn and sinful. From the beginning it was not so. Jesus emphasizes that our starting place, when we look at marriage, our starting place is the other side of the fall. And Jesus then adds this in verse 9. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Okay, we, we live in a day... Uh, of no-fault divorce laws. You're not even required to show wrongdoing to end a marriage. And remarriage is just as easy. And 65% of those second marriages end in divorce. And yet Jesus here says that anyone who gets a divorce and marries another commits adultery unless there's a case of sexual immorality. Now, there are things to clarify about this exception. Uh, Jesus isn't undermining what he said earlier. All cases of divorce still ruin God's original intent. But he also recognizes that some acts of sin do such violence to the marriage covenant that the innocent party is free to divorce and remarry. And in that case, it wouldn't be considered adultery. Uh, the one he mentions here is sexual immorality. Okay? Now, some will argue that this uh, refers to sexual sin prior to the marriage, like during the engagement period or what the Jews would have called the betrothal period. Um, I used to hold to this view, which means it's also not an... It's, it's not an exception at all after the marriage has been consummated. But the context is clearly speaking about marriage and grounds for divorce in marriage. Uh, others will seek to limit sexual immorality to cases of adultery, physical intercourse with someone outside the marriage. But Matthew 15, 19 uses both adultery and sexual immorality in the same verse, showing that Matthew has some distinction between the two. I think it's better to take sexual immorality as an umbrella term for grievous sexual sin of all kinds. The reason Jesus permits divorce and remarriage on these grounds is that sexual immorality assaults a key element in the marriage So recall 
the one flesh union we discussed earlier. Right? The bond that exists from sexual union. Sexual sin assaults that element of the covenant. It's like... I'm going to go back to my background a little bit here. It's like taking a cutting torch to what has been welded and then beating it apart until it comes loose. First Corinthians chapter 7, verse 15, adds one more exception. Uh, abandonment by an unbelieving spouse. And many would add that abuse fits that category as well. But again, if we recall the uh, marriage covenant in Genesis 2 that we discussed earlier, whereas sexual sin assaults the one flesh part of the covenant, abandonment assaults the leaving and cleaving part. Outside those two grounds, no one has grounds to divorce and remarry without committing adultery. So you can see why the disciples respond how they do in verse 10. If such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. Which brings us now to a third point that Matthew reveals about Jesus. Jesus came to gift his followers. Jesus came to gift his followers. So the disciples recognize what Jesus' teaching means. Right? They, they hear him stress the permanence of marriage. Jesus has dismissed all the popular escapes that were known in his day. I mean, you had these debates going on among Pharisees uh, that, you know, some were saying, no, 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 it's only these kinds of sexual sins. And others were saying, no, even if she burns my toast and I find that to be displeasing, I'll, I'm going to get rid of her. You know, they, they were debating these, that type of crazy stuff. And Jesus has basically eliminated them all and, set, and, and mentioned these only two rare occasions. So they hear him stress the permanence of marriage. Maybe it's just better not to marry then. It's almost like they're saying, better to be single than having that ball and chain. Not their brightest moment, again. Still, Jesus turns this moment into one where he teaches, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. All right, what does that mean? Not everyone can receive this saying. How you understand these verses uh, will depend a lot on how you take this saying and what it's referring back to. All right, does, so not everyone can receive this saying. Does that look back to Jesus' teaching in verse 9? Well, if so, then those to whom it is given are disciples who are now gifted to understand Jesus' teaching about divorce. So in, his, in obedience to his word, some will have to choose celibacy after divorce since remarriage is no longer an option for them. 
And Jesus is saying that Christ, he's saying that he will gift those who do choose this path. He will give them what they need to obey his word. Uh, but this saying could also look back to, Jesus, to the disciples' words in verse 10. It's better not to marry. That would be the more immediate antecedent. All right, so read this way, Jesus uses the disciples' own saying to kind of make a broader point about singleness. Not, he's saying not everyone can receive this saying that is better not to marry but only those to whom it's given. Meaning, Jesus gifts some to remain single and celibate. Either way, you've got got somebody choosing to be single and celibate. The the point is, how big is that group that's in view here? Um, And then Jesus explains, for there are eunuchs who've been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have made made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. That last clause seems to be used in a figurative way to describe those who voluntarily choose uh, celibacy. Jesus then stresses his gift or enablement. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. Either way, I think the point is that some will remain single and celibate for the sake of the kingdom, and they will do so by Christ's enablement. He will not leave them alone. Jesus will reward their faithful commitment with empowerment to serve his kingdom. This does two things at once in response to the disciples' Right? The first thing it does is it, you know, they have this, well, man, it, it might be better not to marry then. And Jesus' answer says, actually, what it's implying is that actually marriage is good. It's a good thing. So it, it affirms that marriage is good. The disciples shouldn't see it as a trap, as a ball and chain. Yet, Some are also gifted by Jesus to remain unmarried and serve his kingdom faithfully in their singleness. So when you compare this teaching of Jesus to other monotheistic religions, this becomes striking. Judaism doesn't look favorably upon celibacy, especially for men, since God has commanded us to be fruitful and multiply. Islam goes further and condemns the single life. Their prophet Muhammad is recorded saying, the most low in status among your dead are the singles. Mormonism states that spiritual maturity and exaltation in the highest degree of the celestial kingdom require marriage. But the message of Jesus is different. Some he gifts with marriage, others he gifts with singleness. That's because the greatest blessings don't come through marriage and physical offspring, but through Jesus Christ, 
the one offspring and our union with him. So where does that leave us? Let me close with several kinds of application. One relates to our reading of Scripture. Learn from the way Jesus reads the Bible. You're getting a lesson from Jesus right here. As the Pharisees bring up Deuteronomy, he's like, you haven't gone back far enough. right? You, we're seeing in that moment how Jesus himself reads the Bible. We need to learn from him. So pay attention to the larger storyline. The Pharisees read texts like Deuteronomy 24 apart from their place in the Bible's larger storyline. They didn't grasp the law's temporary provisions. And it led to ethical positions that undermined God's purpose for marriage. Right? Didn't Paul have to deal with the same thing in Galatia? Right? Where people were undermining salvation by faith alone because they missed how the law's temporary provision right, came in relation to the Abrahamic covenant and its fulfillment in Jesus, the true seed of Abraham. There's a whole lot in Scripture before Exodus 20 and the Sinai Covenant, and we need to pay attention to it. That will help us set it within its proper context and get where it was all heading. So pay attention to that larger context. Jesus is the better teacher of the law. He fulfills the law. So read the scriptures as a whole. Learn from Jesus how they fit together. Second, listen to Jesus who heals our brokenness. Listen to Jesus who heals our brokenness. Now, this extends well beyond marriage. But since we've discussed marriage, I want to tailor this for the married for a minute. When Rachel and I sit down with couples whose marriages are struggling without fail, one or both people are not listening to Jesus. Some of the first questions we ask How's your prayer life? Are you in the Word? And it is uncanny how connected the two often are when there's no reading in the word and no spending time in prayer together before the Lord so no listening to Jesus and how that's connected to you just start listing the problems what do you expect to happen in a marriage when the only voices you're listening to are the ones in your head Guys, Jesus is the one who heals. Jesus is the one who knows how marriage works. Jesus has new creation power and he can transform your marriage to reflect the order and the peace of his kingdom. But you got to be listening to him.
So listen to Jesus who heals our brokenness. Third, embrace Jesus' stance on marriage. Embrace Jesus' stance on marriage. Whether it's the sexual revolution or the Supreme Court or Netflix, our culture inundates us with ideas that redefine marriage or treat it lightly or turn people so cynically against it that fewer and fewer and fewer people want it. And Jesus' teaching here subverts that outlook. God created marriage. It's a sacred institution in which God joins one man to one woman in an exclusive covenant relationship. They partner in grace to glorify their Redeemer's covenant-keeping love. So marriage has a divine origin, a covenantal design, and a Christ-centered end. The world says, if marriage compromises your personal fulfillment, then get out. And we must say no. Right? The world says, same-sex marriage is a thing. And we must say no. If you uphold this view of marriage, the world will hate you. We're in a gospel where John the Baptist got his head cut off for saying, Herodias, your union with that guy is unlawful. The world will say, that is oppressive. But the real oppression occurs when humanity rejects what the Creator made and what the Creator said. God's Word rightly orders relationships and brings true freedom, freedom to live as we ought. And that includes what God says about marriage. Now, embracing Jesus' stance on marriage won't just mean it affects how we're talking to the world about marriage. It will also affect what's going on inside the church. So, for those married, for those who are married, stay married and work on your marriage. Don't tear apart what God has joined together. Protect your marriage. Don't just drift and think, ah, everything's fine. She's still in. I'm still here. And yet you're doing little to invest. Don't make the faithful commitment of your spouse an excuse for you to do nothing. Invest in the relationship. Men, I had a lot to say about this at our last men's meeting. So come talk to me, and I'll give you the notes if you, want, if you weren't there or you need to review. If you're married and things are not good, get help. Find a mature, godly couple in the church. And learn from them. I guarantee that the, when you start listing the problems you're experiencing, they're going to say, oh, yeah, yep, yep, nope, we, we were there, we did that, that happened to us, God taught us this. So tell them your struggles. 
Don't go it alone. Ask for counsel. Pray together that God would turn your ashes into beauty. If things have been so hard that you've toyed with divorce, consider whether consider Jesus' words and whether you have legitimate grounds. If you don't, then it would be sinful to act on divorce. If you do, that doesn't mean you must divorce. Grounds for divorce do not necessitate divorce. Consider how Matthew 19 follows Matthew 18 and Jesus' teaching on forgiving 70 times 7. Also, our pattern should resemble Yahweh's pursuit of His unfaithful bride. Throughout the Old Testament, God compares His relationship to His people like a marriage covenant. And there are occasions in Israel's history when they did great violence to that covenant. They abandoned God. They cheated on God with idols. God had every right to divorce them. You even get language like this in Isaiah 51 and Jeremiah 3 and Hosea 2. God had every legal right to divorce them. And yet, again and again, we find Him in tender compassion, pursuing them, wooing them back to Himself. God forgives them and cleanses them and makes them His own. He even adorns her in the most beautiful clothes and He spreads His wedding banner over His people and gives her a new name. We find the same pattern in our Lord Jesus. As a husband, He came to us in our sin. Matthew's Gospel has already pointed him out as the bridegroom. He loved us. He gave Himself for us on the cross, Ephesians 5 says, to sanctify us and cleanse us and then, and then to present us to Himself in splendor. That's why Jesus holds such a high standard for marriage. Marriage is meant to reflect Christ's union with His bride. Jesus' love went to the cross in the face of great betrayal. So consider how you might copy that same love in your marriage. If you're already doing that, if you've already exhausted every attempt to restore the marriage and things are still bad, remember that Christ knows what rejection and betrayal feels like. And He stands by you. He sympathizes with you. The church is also here to help. The elders can help you discern next steps and join you in determining a plan of care. But your greatest hope is that Jesus will never leave you. Jesus will never lie to you. Jesus will never give up on you. Jesus will never push you away. So keep looking to His faithfulness and His resolve to love you till the end. For those who have been divorced on illegitimate grounds and you and your former spouse are still unmarried, 
1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10 says to stay unmarried or be reconciled to your spouse. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 10 and 11. So where that's possible, begin to pursue reconciliation. If you've been divorced on illegitimate grounds and you're remarried, then acknowledge that past act as adultery and then turn to Jesus for forgiveness. This does not mean that your second marriage is not a true marriage. Jesus' words imply that it is, as do the words of Deuteronomy 24. This also doesn't mean that your marriage should now be viewed, your second marriage should now be viewed as just continual adultery. Jesus can make your current marriage a beautiful testimony to his faithfulness. Like all other sins, adultery is not too much for Jesus' blood. Listen to these words from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. Past tense. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Forgiveness abounds for all kinds of sinners at the foot of the cross. Others of you have experienced a divorce on legitimate grounds. You were sinned against in terrible ways. And you've now found yourself remarried. Churches can sometimes stigmatize those who've been divorced and remarried. But I want to say that has no place in this church. We should be the first to acknowledge the complexities of a broken world and the first to extend fellowship and offer hope for the future. If you're currently choosing the path of celibacy for the sake of of Jesus' kingdom, a choice that might have been the result of various circumstances, maybe divorce, maybe also the, the death of a spouse, or just you've never been married, know that Jesus doesn't think less of your current singleness. In the church, singles often face the challenge of being treated like second best. We have this subculture that gives the impression that life really begins only after you're married. But that's not true. Like marriage, singleness is a gift from God. Singles have an important role in the kingdom. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 32 to 35 Paul explains the great freedoms that that singles have to serve the Lord. So if you're currently single, give your undivided devotion to the Lord. Jesus has lots for you to do in his kingdom. And then lastly, for all of us, remember Jesus Christ and why he came. 
Remember Jesus Christ and why he came. According to Matthew's gospel, he came to heal what's broken. Through his life, death, and resurrection power, he is working to reverse the curse. Everything broken will be made right by him. He also came to fulfill the law on your behalf. We observe this in his teaching, but we also observe it in the love that he embodied on the cross for our sins. He also came to gift his faithful ones with all that they need to serve him. So, matter, so no matter where you are today, single or married, no matter what your past is, we all have this in common. We need Jesus, and we need the salvation that he brings. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I thank you for your words that you inspired. I ask that you would give us help to obey them and give due attention to them. I ask that you would, in all of the marriages here, strengthen us to endure and persevere in love. Make all of these the marriages represented here, a parable, a living parable of Jesus and his bride, the church. Um, I pray that you would help us to follow Christ in upholding and honoring marriage in the church. I ask that you would equip Singles, that you would give them everything they need so that they can, even for those who long to be married, they can remain content in their service of you, knowing that you are at their side, giving them everything uh, available and able to give them everything they need to glorify you in the kingdom of heaven. I pray that the the church as a whole would find themselves enriched by the Holy Spirit's enablement to follow Jesus' words in these things and that we might be able to point others to Jesus who comes to heal all that's broken. In his name we pray, amen. Amen.